Structurally, where are we in the book of Leviticus? Last week was the dead middle point. And we talked about that was the center of the center of the center. The center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. The center of Leviticus is Leviticus 16. And the center of Leviticus 16 is the ceremony where they sprinkle the blood in the Holy of Holies. So it's all about atonement. And we're coming out of chapter 16. And we discussed in detail last time, so I won't go through it in detail again tonight. We're coming out of the chiastic structure. And it's going to start to parallel what we've already seen. It's not going to be the same thing, but it's going to be in parallel. So the last thing we saw before the Day of Atonement was the cleanliness laws about leprosy, about the foods, things like that. So now we're going to get into moral laws. So they're, they're both issues that need to be obeyed by the children of Israel. This one is focusing much more on what we would call moral issues. And this 17 through 20, these chapters traditionally called the holiness code, which sounds like a really cool Christian movie, I guess, the holiness code. Uh, It's all about how they were to conduct themselves, not just ceremonially, but morally. And again, Leviticus as a whole is answering the question, if God is going to dwell among us, How's that going to work? Well, we've already seen you must approach him with blood. You have to approach him with the blood of the sacrifice and also to walk in cleanness and purity. Psalm 24, verse 4, we sang it tonight. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You can see that outline, right? That clean hands are the chapters leading up to 16, pure heart are the chapters after 16, and in the middle is the one who stands in the holy place. And this, these chapters are also significant because we begin to see an increase in the warnings God gives about what will happen when they get to the promised land. We've seen some of that in Exodus We've seen a little bit of that in Leviticus so far. It's really going to start ramping up now. The second piece of Leviticus is going to have a lot of it, especially chapters 17 through 20. Numbers is going to have even more, and that's pretty much the whole point of Deuteronomy, is how to conduct yourselves once you're in the land. It's going to warn them against imitating the Canaanites. And that's our title tonight is one of the lines that he uses in here. Do not do as they do. Separation is one of the major themes of the book of the law. And in fact, separation is the fundamental idea of holiness. We think of holiness and we think of being good, being moral or righteous. And yes, that is part of it. But the base meaning of something that is holy is something that is separated. It is distinct. The sanctuary is something that has been sanctified. It is a room that has been separated from other rooms for holy use. So a Christian, as he is sanctified, is further set apart from the world, made holy. So when God tells him to be holy as I am holy, he's not just talking about morality. He's talking about distinction from the world and its system. Now, you and I live in a different dispensation, a different era of church history. But the same rule of separation from the world applies to us. And we're going to see this In the New Testament, we spent an awful lot of time, Sunday we did it, for example, talking about the difference between the church, and we use that term, the world. Now, that's a biblical term. In fact, it's a very Johannine. The Gospel of John uses that term a lot, and so do the other writers of the Bible. Because ultimately, to use Leviticus terms here, the presence of God in our midst, in our case, the Holy Spirit within us, is greater, is of greater value than the approval of the people around us. 
And people don't like that when Christians stand separate. There are even most Christians don't like that because it's not a lot of fun exactly. And you're not going to get any points from the world for it. But it's absolutely necessary. So that's what the, the broad theme of these chapters are about. And uh, we're going to do some large sections as we go through tonight, starting with chapter 17. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end, that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So our first prohibition that we see here is going to define the tabernacle as the only acceptable place of sacrifice. We've already seen this in the end of Exodus, but now he's going to make it abundantly clear. And there seems to be a specific issue that prompted the Lord to give this piece of instruction. There is only one sanctuary in the whole world, and it's the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Now, there are two ways to interpret this. And it depends on how you understand the word for kill. In verse 3, if anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat. Those three animals, of course, are the three animals that were used in sacrifice. An ox, a lamb, or a goat. Now, I think the best way to understand this in context is that that word for kill can be interpreted to kill as a sacrifice. That this is not describing killing something for any purpose, as in killing it for meat, as if you're going to have a feast and so you're going to kill a sheep or something to that extent. I think verse 5, when he says why he's giving them this rule, so that they may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field to the Lord. Now, the other way of looking at this is this was... Any time you had to kill an ox or a goat or a sheep, you had to bring it to the tabernacle as a peace offering. I don't really see that as, as necess necessary as an interpretation of this section. I think what he's saying is, if you offer a sacrifice somewhere else, you need to bring, look at what he says, the blood and the fat to the tabernacle so that the priest can Offer it before the Lord. So if you're going to kill an ox, you know, kill the fatted calf, right? Because the prodigal son has come home. You didn't need to bring 
the whole thing to the tabernacle, but you did need to take the, uh, if it was a, offered as a sacrifice to the Lord, you had to take the pieces that normally would have been burnt during a peace offering, and they would have to be burnt at the tabernacle. There is a difference of opinion on that, but I think it's what he's getting at. And the reason I say that is because there are several cases in the Old Testament where they offer sacrifices in other places than the tabernacle, and the Lord accepts it. So consider uh, Manoah, consider Samson's father and mother. When they offer sacrifices to the angel of the Lord and the fire catches it up into heaven. Or, I mean, speaking of fire from heaven, Elijah on Mount Carmel, that he offers the sacrifices and they're taken up to heaven. You consider 1 Samuel 13, that Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice before the battle, but because Samuel took too long, Saul did it, and that was the problem. So th- there's plenty of examples in the Old Testament where people are offering sacrifices somewhere else, so that itself does not seem to be the problem. What it does say, though, is you need to bring the relevant portions to the tabernacle to be fully consumed there. And he gives the reason why. Why is the Lord doing this? That seems like a bit of a hassle. Well, he's trying to identify, first of all, the tabernacle is the place of worship. But secondarily, he says, so that they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. I saw everybody sit up a little bit when I read that. Goat demons, yeah. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 tells us that what idolaters offer in sacrifice, they offer to demons. So, that statue before which somebody is burning an animal is not just, oh, a statue. No, there's demonic power behind that. And 1 Corinthians 10 does a good job of drawing out both sides of the coin. He says, yeah, in one sense, an idol is nothing. Right? It's not a real god. But on the other side, there's, there's demonic work going on here. And, but the children of Israel in this situation were not deceived as to what they were doing. They knew full well they were offering a sacrifice to a goat demon. A goat was a fertility symbol at this time. Goats were often used in pagan ceremonies, especially related to witchcraft. That is still true today. If you ever hear about some Satanist group doing something, they've got a goat Right? And that's, that's the reason for that. And this kind of thing was so common that even in the midst of all this instruction about sacrifice, the children of Israel might have missed it. Now, you and I would never even consider doing that. Right? That for good luck to protect the flocks tonight, we're going to burn a sacrifice so that the goat demon you know, kind of think of like the satyrs or the fawns, they're sometimes called from Greek mythology, that have the, the legs of a goat and the horns. It's that, that sort of thing. And we say, we would never do that, of course, that's idolatry. But back then, they, they see, well, we're still offering to the Lord, but for good luck, we want to make sure that these spirits don't hurt the, uh, the flocks or make sure that they bless us with fertility. It was a very animistic holdover kind of idea that, that there's spirits everywhere. They weren't wrong about that. They were very wrong to offer sacrifices to them. And this is the kind of thing that somebody could be a good, in their mind, a good Yahweh-worshipping, tabernacle-going, burnt-offering, sacrificing Hebrew, and yet they would still go home and offer burnt offerings to a goat demon. So the Lord is like, any sacrifice, whether it's to me, it should only be to me, or if you're doing it for anybody else, you have to bring it here. And the thing is, the way that they thought back then is whatever altar the sacrifice ends up landing on, that's the God that it's going to. So God is is explicitly forbidding them from doing this. 
He says, I am the only one that is to be worshipped by the nation of Israel. And you have to understand what a radical thing this was at this time. There was no such thing as monotheism at this time. Like there was, it was only uh, polytheism. It was only pantheons of God. The word pantheon, pan in Greek means every. Theon is like theology, means God, every God. We have lots of gods. The Egyptians, you've seen it in uh, maybe the Prince of Egypt, they're singing that song and they're chanting the name of all their gods. And it's overwhelming. You read uh, Greek or Roman mythology and it's just, you need an index in the back to know who all these spirits were. I mean, it, that's how it was everywhere and still is in large measure today. So God telling them, you will not offer sacrifices to anybody but me, is radical. And this is the same radical truth that is taught to us in the New Testament, that we have one God and one Lord, and he does not share his glory. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So there's only one God right there. We've wiped out all polytheism and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus right there. You've wiped out Islam. You've wiped out any other cult that might rise up. The only way to approach Jesus or approach the father is through Christ, which is what Jesus himself said. Paul didn't make this up as some people will claim. John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. So even the very confession of Islam, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, it does not jive with what the scripture says. It's simply not true. There's only one God and there's only one way to approach God and that is by the blood of Jesus. Acts 17.30, Paul tells the Athenians, in the past, God in his patience overlooked your false religions because he knew that Jesus hadn't come yet. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. The times of ignorance are over and the age of the gospel has come. Which is why Christians are not tolerant of other religions. To use a term that we love to use, it's kind of fallen out of favor now as, as things have gotten more and more radicalized, right? But man, when I was growing up, that was the only thing that mattered is how tolerant you were. We, we are intolerant of other religions. It's not live and let live, except as, you know, you're a neighbor and I'm a neighbor and we can be friends. But I do not believe that the way you worship the Lord is as legitimate as what Jesus has taught us. I believe you are violently deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, In the last days, men will give heed to doctrines of demons. So it's not just another way of thinking about it. It's doctrines from demons. We're still dealing with this. This is an extreme separation. And there are even some so-called Christians that really don't like this exclusive message. They say, oh, it's so narrow. Well, didn't Jesus say, narrow is the road that leads to life and there are few that find it? We want to be inclusive, but the Lord's only way of being inclusive is by calling all to bow the knee to Christ Jesus. Because we want God's presence in our midst, not the applause of other people. Verse 10. So no other sanctuaries, just mine, and leave those goat demons alone, okay? Number, verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That might be a good verse to underline. A lot of New Testament fulfillment from that verse. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner. So notice it is the same rule whether you are a Hebrew or not. If you're living here, you're going to follow this rule. He shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So this is yet another prohibition against eating blood. And there's been a lot of these in the Torah so far. The first instance we saw of this was with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. where The Lord told Noah, you are now permitted to eat meat, but you are not permitted to eat the blood. So he says, even when hunting, notice this. He says, if you take a bird or if you take a deer when you're out hunting, there were plenty of clean animals they could eat that were not sacrificial animals. He said, you still needed to drain the blood. And how this was done is they would cut the carotid artery. They would drain the blood out. And then the Lord tells them, you were to bury the blood. He says, you are to show respect for the life that has been taken. I think this is very fascinating because... All these Native American cultures and so on get so much love from certain people because look at even the respect they show to the animals they killed. Well, isn't this exactly what the Lord is teaching here? He says, you are are over the animals. You have dominion over the earth. However, when you take life, any kind of life, you're to be respectful and you are to recognize what a serious thing it is for blood to be shed. So even when hunting, he also mentions animals that were found dead or died by themselves. So don't just think roadkill here. Think you've got old Bessie the cow and you wake up in the morning and old Bessie has keeled over and died. Okay, you are not able to properly drain the blood. And what happens is the the blood will coagulate and it won't all drain as it should. So what the Lord says is if you eat that meat, you're technically allowed to, but you are unclean until the evening if you do so. Uh, A lot of the things that I read said that meat was such a luxury at this point that it's very unlikely that it's like today where we, you can barbecue three or four times a week, that meat was a big deal. So these laws would not have applied as, as would not have been as onerous as they seem to us as we read them. And God explains why here. And this is important to to say. He says the life is in the blood. And there's a general respect for life here. Right? The Lord tells us, and most of us are right-wingers in here, so it's good for us to hear this every once in a while. The Lord has made us steward over the world. And he expects us to take care of the animals. He expects us to take care of the environment, to use that word, to cultivate the earth and make it grow and make it blossom, and to respect every life that is taken, even if it is an animal life. Not to the weird extreme where the animals are as, more, as important or more important than human life, but still. But the primary reason is that blood is used in the tabernacle for atonement. He says, when you realize what blood is used for to be sprinkled in that holy place, He says, you you can't shed blood, any kind of blood, flippantly. 
It says it is to be taken seriously, whether you are a citizen or a sojourner. He says, I don't care if you're not a Jew. You can live here, but there are certain things that you're going to obey. The Sabbath, the blood laws, things like that. And the penalty for this is sharp, which is you'll be cut off. This primarily refers to exile. You're no longer one of the people. It can also, in certain contexts, refer to execution. It sometimes is referred to the Lord himself directing his wrath against a person. Eating blood was a big deal. In fact, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, verse 20, this is one of the fellowship rules that were given to the Gentile Christians when they came into the church. They abstained from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And those two, things strangled and blood, are the, are the same thing. Because strangling an animal to death was not the kosher way to kill an animal to make sure the blood could be drained. And... Uh, we are, as I've said numerous times, I don't want to get into it again. We, the reason we are not under that law any longer is because the purpose of this law has been fulfilled in the atonement of Jesus Christ. The purpose of avoiding eating blood was we are anticipating what Jesus is going to do when his blood is shed. Which is why in Acts 15, it's very clear, the reason they told the Gentiles not to do this was so that the Gentiles and the Jews could have fellowship with one another. Later on, Paul and the other apostles will make clear that uh, even there, even in that matter, we have liberty in Christ Jesus. Although uh, I, I don't, we don't engage in the same kind of disgusting rituals and things that would have been done in drinking blood. And um, I forget, there was some, some Christian movie or other where they were uh, talking about Roman society and they showed an example of a man pouring blood on his head in worship of his Roman God. And that kind of thing was very common. That they would think that you're ingesting the power of this animal, and they would use the the guts of an animal to tell omens, and they would eat it. And uh, it's it, we don't do things like that, and we're also very careful and sanitary in the way that we prepare our meat as well in these days. Uh, but the primary purpose of all this is the atonement of Christ. And here's something very interesting to consider. So, knowing what we just read about eating or drinking blood. Let's read this passage from John 6 together with a fresh understanding. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Because where is the life? In the blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And he says he taught this in the synagogue. So first of all, even we hear that and go, that's kind of icky. But back then, this would have been disobedient to the law and blasphemous. You're saying we got to drink your blood? Don't you know what Moses said in Leviticus 16 about drinking blood? And Jesus said, yeah. Because blood is to be used for atonement, and I am that ultimate atoning sacrifice. You need my blood, because true life is in my blood. So all those beautiful descriptions that we get in the New Testament about the power in the blood of Jesus are all presupposing an understanding of these laws here related to eating and drinking blood of an animal. I mean, consider the fact, Jaron and I were laughing about this a little bit, because you can kind of forget that the communion service is a ceremony that imitates symbolically drinking the blood of Jesus. And we kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, we, we do that. <laughs> that. That seems kind of odd when you think about it. And I think Jaron said edgy is a good word. I think that is a good word. 
Consider in Luke twenty-two twenty, when Jesus is establishing the, la- the communion service at Last Supper, he hands out the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. Like, wow. All this about not drinking blood, and now then here comes Messiah, and he says, drink my blood. We say, why? Because there's power in the blood of Jesus. That's why he implemented that ceremony with those words, is because there is life in the blood. And until you have participated in the blood of Jesus, you have no life. And by that, of course, it means putting your faith in Christ Jesus and believing on him. And the power of the blood of Jesus is at work in you forever if you are his. So that's, that's just a great example of a cool little parallel there. And it, it just takes Jesus' words to another level when you understand the law, right? Let's move into chapter 18, and uh, we're going to go do a little smaller section here. Uh, 18, 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Underline that phrase. I am the Lord. God begins chapter 18 by asserting his authority as their God. And he says it a couple times because he's commanding them to keep his statutes, but also to carry on with our theme, to be different, to stay separate from the Egyptians and the Canaanites both. He says, neither what has come before in the land of Egypt, nor what will come after in the land of Canaan is to alter what I have said here. And to pick up how I was speaking in the, in the introduction, as Christians, we very often speak in terms of distinction and contrast to the world. And I know there are a lot of Christians and even pastors that don't like us speaking that way. They say, we shouldn't say that because what if somebody comes into the church, they'll hear it and it'll sound like we don't like them or that we're special, we think we're better than them. Well, look, you can say that if you want But this is biblical terminology that we're using when we talk that way. This principle of do not do as they do applies to us as Christians. Jesus said in John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Can you see Jesus himself drawing this distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are in the world? Peter very often will describe us as sojourners, as those traveling through, dwelling in a tent, making our way through the wilderness of the world. It is biblical to talk that way. Because we belong to Christ, we're different. We're separate, and we are to stay and remain separate. In our theology, first of all, in what we believe about God, we're different from the rest of the world. You know, people like to, people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and you talk to them for a few minutes, and it's like, well, you have a few Christian ideas that you've worked in, but you've also got all these other things that you've brought in, and you've never been born again in any meaningful sense, and you haven't been to church in a long time, but, you know, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not Jewish, so I guess I must be a Christian. We're different in our theology. We have very distinct and, and clear ideas about God. That itself is different from the world, isn't it? 
We don't come out and say, who knows? This is what I think, but what do you think about God? We come out and we say, I know what God is like. And that's offensive to people. The thought of somebody knowing what God is like. How can you say something like that? We're different, not just in our theology, but in our attitude. It affects the way we think about life. We're full of joy and hope and peace. And then it, there's so much cynicism today. I can kind of feel it shifting. I don't know if you can too. But people are starting to get fed up with that. And it's, I think we're, we're moving into some happy days here in the next maybe 10 years. I hope so, because it's been a bummer for a long time. But, uh, you know, Christians are different. Like, we have joy, we have hope, and we have peace. And the world likes that part until you tell them why. And they're like, ah, well, I could never do that. It's like, hey, tell me how you're so happy. Well, it's Jesus. Never mind. It's like, hey, I thought you wanted to find out how I was so happy. Yeah, but I don't want anything to do with that. All right. But not only that, we also have a sobriety about us as Christians, don't we? We have a, a serious grief towards the way that the world is going. We have a very serious uh, this attitude in general because we know that this is life and death and it's not just life and death, it's heaven and hell. And the person we're talking to who is not a believer, it could, it could be their final day and they might have to stand before God. I've got to tell them. So our attitude is different and also our behavior. And that's really what this chapter is all about. We act differently from the world. 1 John talks about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the world. John says, don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. That's why we speak that way. The very idea of holiness is separation. And the thing is, even as a Christian, there is a constant temptation to be drawn, number one, back to Egypt. You were saved out of all this stuff, and then once you've been saved for a while, you start to get nostalgic for it. Now, you're not nostalgic for the sin. You're nostalgic for good times. You're nostalgic for being younger. I mean, even when you're walking in, in sin, there's not, I mean, there's nothing redeemable or good about it. Maybe there was, it was just a happier time of your life, even though you weren't in Christ. And you get nostalgic for that. And you think, you know what I need to do to get that back is I need to start doing that sin again. It's probably not such a big deal, but, you know, I, I really miss when I used to go out and just get smashed every weekend. I mean, those were good times. Well, they weren't good times because you went and sinned every weekend. Find something else to be nostalgic for. Or you can have moved on from Mount Sinai. Now you're in Canaan. And it's not the things you used to do. It's the things that are happening right in front of you that are an attraction for you. We saw so many, and by we, I mean my family, we saw so many of our dear Christian brothers and sisters that when the pandemic and all the attendant worldview shift came through, that they who were so strong against every attack against the faith from the days of Jesus up till that day were entirely unprepared for all of this, this crazy, I don't know, woke stuff, for, for lack of a better term. But not just that, but this whole, the, the church is not enough. We've got to get rid of savior narratives. We've got to stop you know, reading the Bible as our sole authority. It's Western oppression. And we go, how did you fall for that? You were so, like, you used to teach apologetics against all this other stuff, and then this one blows through because they were defending against Egypt but not against Canaan. They weren't ready for what was coming next. And as a Christian, you've got to be guarded against that too because all this stuff is going to be done, and then something else is going to come. And it's going to be, maybe it'll be a lot more attractive to you this time around. You've got to be prepared for it. Holiness is separation. None of these things move us as Christians. We know the truth and it's changed us forever. Doesn't that explain why we're different? We know the truth. If you, it's, it's like all those movies where you find out what's really going on behind the scenes. It's like, you can't go back and, and live your normal life, right? 
Bilbo can't just hang out when he knows there's an adventure with dragons and wizards and all this stuff. Like, he's got to go. It's the same thing for you and me, but on a far greater scale. I know why I'm alive. I know who God is. I know what he's done. I know what his word says. I, I can't just go about my normal day. Like, none of that's true. And Paul gives us a very strong message in this vein in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? You don't hook up a giant strong bull and a little baby calf because the big bull is just going to muscle through and drag the little one along, right? It's called being unequally yoked. They won't be able to plow a straight furrow. So Paul says in the same way, don't yoke yourself to an unbeliever. And this can apply to marriage and dating. It can apply to business. It can apply to certain kinds of friendships. All sorts of things. Do not be unequally yoked. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? So much for not contrasting the world and the church, huh? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What agreement, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This, that's a pretty strong statement from Paul, isn't it? He's like, what do you have in common with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? If somebody doesn't have any, and people say, oh, I don't care if you're, if you're a Christian, that's fine. It's like, if you don't care about the most important thing about me, then what do we really have in common? What if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I love you, man, but don't talk about your wife around me. I don't want to hear about her. Just, you know, I got, I really, I don't, I don't like her. I hate her. I think she's been a problem to the world, but I like, I like you. Just don't talk about her. It's like, no, we're not going to be friends. All right. Well, we're not going to be able to hang out and be good buddies. If you treat my wife that way. Well, I know I love you. I just hate her. It's like, but that's my wife. We're one. We're together. Our relationship is the fundamental relationship of my life. It's the same thing when somebody goes, hey, I love you, but don't bring that Jesus stuff around here. Now, listen, you, you'll work at places with people like that. You'll be neighbors with people like that. I know I sure am. Right? You'll even come across people like that in the store or on an airplane or whatever. And that doesn't mean that you can't talk to them or you can't love them or you can't even spend some time with them. But you've got to know that you are disconnected at the most fundamental spiritual level. And um, if you're going to be yoked together, there's going to be somebody giving something. And it's almost always going to be the Christian. I realize that talking this way comes off as lame. A lot of Christian comedians get an awful lot of traction out of making fun of the church's efforts to stay separate from the world. And I really don't like it. But the reason we do that is because we've been told to. Or it can even come off as rude or hateful or bigoted. Right? So what, I'm an infidel and you don't want to spend time with me? Maybe. That might be exactly what it is. But the truth has set us free in Christ Jesus, and I have to maintain this separation and this distinction because I know what's 
true. And the thing is, it's ultimately not about behavior. That's a big part of it. It's not because we do things this way and you do things that way. That's kind of an Amish kind of separation, right? This is what we do. This is what they do. Let's just kind of stay separate from each other. It's about the heart. It's about faith in Christ. Verse 5 in chapter 18, where he says, if a person does them, meaning God's statutes and rules, if a person does them, he shall live by them. Paul contrasts that phrase with salvation by grace through faith twice. Romans chapter 10, verse 5, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. Our salvation is not based upon keeping God's statutes and rules. We do, but they're second place because of faith. And that, that order is very important. So we maintain separation, but separation not just because we do things differently. It is because of a heart transformation. It is because of faith. It is because of knowing the truth and that we are to constantly be on mission of bringing people to that point of faith. It's not that I hate you because you do this. It's I cannot allow myself to be connected and tied to you at this deepest level because you do not know the truth about the Lord and you need this. And I have to maintain this kind of separation so that I can minister this to you faithfully. We're always extending an invitation of love. That's the other thing. Oh, so what? So you don't ever want to talk to the world again? Oh, no. Anybody can come. In fact, we, we hope you do. We're constantly inviting you and bringing you in. One of, the, one of the last verses in the Bible says, The Spirit, God, and the Bride, the church, say, Come! There's a constant open invitation. But until you say yes, you are still in darkness. So we maintain that separation. Let's get into verse 6 now. This section will go a little faster because I want to get to the next one. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. So out of the prologue, now we're into the actual instructions of chapter 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So these first set of instructions are related to incest. And he gives, as you saw, a very detailed list of examples here. To uncover nakedness is a biblical reference to sex. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden where they were naked and they were exposed and God covered their nakedness. And it is the prerogative of a husband and a wife to uncover each other's nakedness. 
It also, by the way, and this would preach on its own, this chapter demonstrates how God views sex as something mystical that unites a family together. That God says, even if you're stepbrothers or it's your stepmom, your family, that's how God sees it, which is important for us to remember if we're in those kinds of relationships. That God's not worried about whether it is a step relationship or an in-law relationship, your family. So this list here, just to break it down easier for you, a man was not to have sex with, and this is written from the male perspective, but you could flip it, of course, not with his mother or his stepmother, his sister or his stepsister, his granddaughter, his aunt, his daughter-in-law, his sister-in-law, his stepdaughter or his step-granddaughter. And uh, somebody made a good point in one of my commentaries that this is probably a representative list. That if you want to try to poke around, say, oh, he forgot this one. The, the point he's making is if there is somebody that you are closely related to, you are not to be having sexual relations together. He also says you're not to take a rival sister wife. And this is a specific prohibition because this is a woman that you're not directly related to, so what's the big deal? I'm not blood-related to either of them. He goes, once you've taken the one sister, don't bring in another one. He also includes that idea of rivalry, which is important. Now, these laws are tricky because you do have relationships like this in the Old Testament prior to the law. Adam's children, for example. Where did Cain get his wife? Where did Seth get his wife? It's not a hard answer. They would have married their sisters. This would have been the beginning of humanity, and they would have spread quickly, and then from then they would have uh, moved on to the way that we do it today. And theologically, we believe that the corruption of sin had not yet so polluted the bloodlines that this would have been such a problem. We also have Abraham, who married his half-sister, which would have been prohibited. Notice, however, this was done before the Lord called him, so I think that's significant. Uh, Also, we have Jacob, who married two sisters while they were alive. But we read that story, and I think you saw it was never a good thing. Like, never once did we go, wow, what a great thing that Jacob married both of those sisters. It It was miserable for everybody involved, so it's probably why they include this here. The only example that might go against some of this is something that is called leveret marriage. And we'll talk about that in Deuteronomy 25. This is if you and your brother both get married. Your brother dies and he doesn't have any children yet. It was your responsibility as the brother-in-law to take his wife, to give her a child, and then to raise him as the brother's, uh, the brother's son to continue on his name. But this is a very uh, distinct thing. There's some details that uh, we want to search out a little bit, but we'll discuss it when we get there. Now, these laws make good sense to us, right? I mean, we kind of get all of these, I, I would hope. Uh, but we, I, we, I only want to say this. Don't take any sexual rule for granted ever. But we'll always know that. Oh, no, we won't. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about this kind of thing was going on in the church. He said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind not even tolerated among pagans, that a man has his father's wife. This guy was living with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Look how loving we are. We even let this guy with his stepmother. Paul goes, Aren't you ra- Shouldn't you rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. If we do not maintain the foundation of the word of God, every kind of morality will start to slip, including something that seems as obvious as this. As we see as we continue on here, verses 19 through 23, 
You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So we've got some further sexual prohibitions here. Starting with uh, a woman during her menstruation. Ezekiel 18.6 holds up this example as the kind of person that obeys the Lord, as a man that refuses to do this. Now, we've already looked at this. This would cause them both to become unclean. We've already uh, gone through that law in some detail. This law was never repeated in the New Testament. Likely, it has to do with the uncleanness of the tabernacle and also blood. Again, we know uh, how the blood laws were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we've already discussed that, so I'm going to keep going. Second is a word against adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 14. Now, I think we all know this one. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on your husband. But may I just take a minute and remind you how wicked this is? When we just discussed how the Lord goes, if you've come together sexually, your family with her family or his family. So this union, Malachi says there's a portion of the spirit in the sexual union. The two become one flesh, says Genesis. So to then break that with somebody else is a terrible thing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 gave us two very strong words about adultery. He said, number one, if you lust after another woman, then you've committed adultery with her. He also says that if you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, then you have also committed sexual immorality. You've committed adultery. I have known way too many people that want to be with somebody, but we didn't commit adultery. We got divorced first, and then we got married. That's still adultery in God's eyes. You broke a union. You broke a vow that was never to be broken. Now, there's grace for all of that, and there's forgiveness for all of that, just as there's grace and forgiveness for everything. But we still need to know what's right. Proverbs chapter 5, we talked about this already on Sunday. He says, you know what? Delight yourself in your own wife, and don't go after the forbidden woman. The Bible makes a very big deal out of the fact that a husband and a wife ought to delight in one another sexually as a safeguard against adultery. So number three, this one prohibits offering children to Molech. And the word for offering there, he says, is to pass through. Molech was the Ammonite god, and the Ammonite god Molech was worshipped through child sacrifice. There's a number of ways this God has been depicted in in literature and in history. Some of them have described him as having arms that went out that were, of course, scalding hot because of the altar, and the babies were put on the arms of the the idol. Some of them say this was a large, like, house-looking thing, and there were little ovens where they would put the children in. It's horrific, and they would play loud music to drown out the screams of the children, and there would be sexual activity going on while this was happening. And I know this is a horrific thing to say. Jeremiah 32, 35, he says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, 
The Lord says, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The Lord goes, I, I, I can't imagine, I would never have even thought of this, that you would do something like that. To go and burn your children up. And this is historically and archaeologically confirmed. They find countless baby skeletons in the places where Moloch was worshipped. And the Lord is telling them, you're not going to do this. But unfortunately, the children of Israel did. Solomon was the first one to build a high place for King Molech. Or for the god Molech, I should say. 1 Kings 11 verse 7 tells us he did it to please one of his wives which is just horrific. Perhaps she said, no, we won't do any of the child sacrifice. We'll just offer incense. But we know that that did not stay that way. King Manasseh in 2 Kings 21.6 offered up his own son. He offered someone of the bloodline of the Messiah to the god Molech in the fire. So anytime you read in your Bible, it says that they made their child to pass through the fire. That's what it's talking about. This was, this was abortion. And this is a very much more ceremonial and less clinical method of abortion. And you might say, why is God including this verse here? We're talking about sexual laws. Exactly. This is how the unwanted children of sexual liaisons were disposed of. The primary use of this is if any of the temple, not the Lord's temple, but of these other temple prostitutes got pregnant, this is what they'd do with the children. So if you went to worship Asherah or you went to worship Baal, they would have priestesses in the temple. And the way you worshipped Asherah was by having sex with this prostitute. And what they said is the spirit of the goddess will inhabit this prostitute. And it's like, it's like having copulation with the goddess herself. Yeah, it's real, real slick, pal, coming up with a religion like that, huh? Well, what about, aren't their children going to be born? Yes. And they were killed. Or you could come and you could wrap it in religion and say, I'm, I'm allowing my child, I'm giving my child back to God. It's horrific. It's, it's an abomination. And the reason that the Lord includes it here is because he says this kind of thing comes when you don't put a tight lid on your sexual drives and desires. If you don't get that right first, you're, yeah, this is the thing. People will say, we say, we've got to put an end to abortion. They say, well, then what are we going to do with all these kids that nobody wants? We say, well, you've got to stop having sex. You've got to get married. You've got to do it the way God has done. Well, you're, you're just going to tell me how to live my life? So selfish. But you can see that the problem really isn't at the level of abortion. It's at the level of self-control, sexual self-control. Same lack of restraint leads to our own violence against our own children. And there's grace and there's forgiveness for that too. But we've got to know what the Lord has said there, there is no, I don't care what any pastor or politician or theologian says, there is no wiggle room in scripture that killing a baby or an unborn child is acceptable before God. It's simply not. It's unambiguous. Speaking of unambiguous, let's get to number four here. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. <laughs> You know, if there's a verse that people who hate the Bible know, they know Leviticus 18.22 because they hate it so much. This is an infamous verse prohibiting homosexuality and calling it an abomination. And we've gone through this several times, so I don't want to beat it again, but let's just go through this. Because the Bible, the only time the Bible discusses homosexuality is when they call it an abomination and that the person who conducts that is, is going to go to hell. That's the only time it's discussed. Jude, verse 7. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Why do I quote Jude and not the passage from Genesis? Because people will say, well, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the problem was they didn't show the right amount of hospitality in receiving the Lord. And there are verses that discuss that. But that is not the primary point of that passage. I think anybody that can just read it without an agenda can get that. But Jude makes it very clear. The apostolic interpretation of that story is that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to those that want to excuse this sin later. Revel, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He's going to explain what he means by dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There are some feminist scholars that like to get wiggle through here, and they say, now see, Leviticus is talking about a man not lying with a man. It doesn't say anything about lesbianism. Yes, it does in Romans chapter 1. It calls it a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. When Paul says that, it's because there's deception coming. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. There are two very explicit Greek words there. Men who practice homosexuality that literally describe the active and passive partner in a homosexual act. There's no getting around this. It's what he's talking about. And he says those will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you know, people will say, well, why do you look to the Old Testament to try to prove that this is still a sin? Well, I just looked at the New Testament, first of all. But secondly, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, says that the law is needed for people that don't think they're sinners. And he specifically mentions homosexuals. And today, we're supposed to celebrate this sin. Not just... Dis, you know, quietly disagree. You have to celebrate it. Pride month. Pride is also a sin too, by the way. I'm not touching that. As if God had changed his mind. I've had people tell me that. So I'll show them, look at what it says. The Bible says this is wrong. Well, I think God changed his mind. Why? Well, I just believe he did. Well, that's not good enough. I'm sorry. Consent is not a good enough reason to establish a sexual moral. What if they both want to? That's still not good enough. Passion. Oh, this is my drive. It's my orientation. It's my desire. It's my passion. The Bible says there are such things as dishonorable passions. There are defiling passions. Not every passion is good. It's dishonoring to the body. It's debasement of the mind. It does not matter how nice someone is or how much they agree with you politically or whether or not you're related in some way. Sin is sin. People say, why do you talk about this so much? Because you talk about it so much. Because this is the only sin that I'm aware of that is being shoved in my face. Because you must approve this. So we stand strong and we say, no, we don't. 
It's an abomination, always has been. It's not the way God made us. Fifth and finally is a prohibition against bestiality, lying with an animal. This is another law that we seem to grasp intuitively. We kind of get this one quickly, right? But I will just say this. Every kind of sexual deviance has its own advocacy group now, doesn't it? I've told you this before. I'm just going to warn you again in case you don't know this. Uh, Pedophiles are now making a push to be regarded as a sexual orientation. And the term they're using so that you can see this is a MAP, capital M-A-P. stands for Minor Attracted Person. And if you see that, if somebody in like their Twitter profile or something says MAP or no MAP is another person, that's like a, like a non-active minor attracted person, that's a pedophile. We've got to remove the stigma. I mean, like academic journals and like famous magazines and newspapers, we've got to remove the stigma from pedophilia. Wasn't like Focus on the Family warning against this like a long time ago and they got shredded for it? Yeah, we've been warning. So, so those that say the church has been silent, no, we haven't. People just aren't listening to their own judgment. So we say, oh, bestiality, that would never happen. Well, I don't think it's likely to happen either, but I will say that we got to watch out because it's only a matter of time. Once you remove that foundation and the only rule for what's appropriate sexually is consent anymore, and not even that in some cases. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We believe as Christians there is such a thing as sexual right and wrong. It's based in God's design and his commandments. And we refuse to budge on these. We're not under the law, but... Some things are universal, and these instructions precede the law and postdate the law in God's word. So we stand firm on them. Verses 24 through 30, coming quickly to an end here. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Strong words there. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. So he solemnly warns them, keep all these laws. He specifically says not to become unclean by them. And he says, this is why I'm driving out the Amorites is they made the land unclean. So this defiling language is related to the words for being clean in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham, the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. Therefore, judgment wasn't coming. Now it's complete. And God says, though, as they're going in, the same thing could happen to you. You are my chosen people, but you are not exempt from rebuke or even from the same kind of judgment. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. That they were vomited out of the land twice. Don't take God's blessings for granted. You might read it this way. 
The Lord says, you think that because you as the United States of America have all this money and all this wealth and all these wonderful things that I can't drive you out of here like I drove the Native Americans out of here? Do you think you're better than them? Do you think your sins are less sinful than them? My judgment and my wrath is fair. And in the same way, we as Christians cannot claim our status as an excuse to sin and to wander. We'll close with this verse. Revelation 3, 15 through 17. Jesus says, I know your work. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If we engage in these same sins, and Romans 1.32, by the way, says that if you approve those sins, even if you don't do them, the same judgment comes upon you. If we do and engage and approve, how do we think that we'll escape God's wrath? He's the Lord our God. We must obey him. We must fear him, love him, and suffer for him if we must, maintaining the distinction The darkness does not like the light, but that is what you are. Don't be deceived by your Egyptian past or the Canaanite present. Stick to Jesus. Stick with what you learned at the mountain. But for us, it's not Mount Sinai. It's Mount Calvary. Embrace your separation. Delight in your separation. Stop mourning over it. They don't like us. That's exactly what Jesus said. They need your help. And may God show mercy to our nation as we have spent a month celebrating and raging over sins that he has warned us about time and again. And may he grant us as Christians the wisdom and the courage to stand up for his gospel wherever we must.